Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a new documentary called Hop and Rattlesnakes, Oral Histories of Beach Racing in Volusia County, 1903 to 1958. If you go back to the turn of the century, uh, this is where racing began. This is where speed trials started, and this is fast-forward 100 years, and this is where the biggest racing event in the world is. We'll hear recordings from Apollo 8, the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon. Uh, Roger, Houston, this is Apollo 8, loud and clear, Hobby. And we'll discuss the Gulf Archaeology Research Institute. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I had six brothers, and they were always working around the cars. At that time, they were Model A's and Model T's and so forth. After I got married, we bought a house, and it was about a mile and a half away from Motor City Speedway. We said, let's go to the races and see what they're all about. They happened to have a powder puff race. Those girls, they were wrecking each other. They were running into the wall. They had no pattern. I made the remark to my husband. I said, if I couldn't drive any better than that, I wouldn't be out there. So the next week, we decided to go to the races again. But he didn't say anything to me. He just said, let's go by the pit area and go look at the cars. We got to one car, and he says, okay, smarty. He says, see this car? You're going to get out there and run it. I said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. That's female race car driver Vicki Wood, who was born in 1918 and raced at Daytona Beach in the mid-1950s. Vicki Wood was one of the drivers interviewed for the new documentary film Hoppin' Rattlesnakes, Oral Histories of Beach Racing in Volusia County, 1903 to 1958. The film features new interviews with drivers, mechanics, and others associated with racing, as well as archival footage from the Halifax Historical Society. Auto racing is very popular today, and Daytona is a focal point for the sport. Historian and film producer Leonard Limpel says that when auto racing started on the beach in Volusia County in 1903, it was essentially an amusement for wealthy people. The automobile had been around, but the the problem was it was just a... Uh a play toy for the rich, basically. Uh, you, you had to be very wealthy to own an automobile. It's really not until, uh, what, uh, 1914, uh, 1913, when uh, Henry Ford uh, invented the long assembly line that the price of the automobile dropped dramatically. And, uh, you know, by the 1920s, it was a car of the middle class. But, you know, that that wasn't true. And, and, you know, in 1903, when racing started here on the beach, uh, you, you had basically very wealthy northerners came down uh, and stayed at uh, Orman Hotel. Uh, and uh, they took their cars out on the beach and, and started racing. Racing quickly grew from a casual pastime for the rich to a popular sport enjoyed by people from every economic background. People came from around the world to race on the hard-packed sand of Ormond Beach and Daytona Beach. 
Archival footage of beach racing at the Halifax Historical Museum provided an opportunity to celebrate Volusia County's racing history in a film documentary. Leonard Limpel. It really started out as a very modest project. Um, uh, you know, I'm on the board of the Halifax uh, Historical Society, and we have a museum on Beach Street, uh, and uh, we, we have lots of uh, stills and footage of uh, racing, uh, and, you know, but it's just sitting there in, in the library, and uh, uh, it, it's not really uh, in, a, in a situation where it could be used easily. Uh, the average person can come in and get an idea of what it was like. So, uh, so I thought it would be really nice if we uh, took some of that footage and stills and put it into a documentary format uh, that people could come into the museum and look at in, let's say, 20 minutes uh, video. Uh, so that's how the, the idea started. With funding from the Daytona Beach Racing and Recreational Facilities District, the project expanded into an almost hour-long production looking at the evolution of racing in Volusia County. Producer and director Eric Breitenbach. Yeah, and I think what we found was that there were there were kind of two periods uh, of racing between 1903 and 1958. There were the speed trials that started in 1903. Um, those were fascinating. The beach was a very wide and long beach. It was 500 feet long at that time, or 500 feet wide at that time, and 27 miles long, and it was completely flat. So it was possible to race a car at a high rate of speed on that beach. Um, that occurred for about 20 years or so. Uh, the beach shifted at that time. It got narrower and it got bumpier, and that's when they moved the speed trials to Bonneville, uh, Utah. Uh, but in that period of time, there were some extraordinary people that came, uh, both American and primarily British. There was a great rivalry between the Brits and the Americans at that time. And I believe the final record that was set uh, here in Daytona was 297 miles an hour by Mal Malcolm Campbell, the British speed racer. Um, the second part of the history was the stock car racing, which included oval racing, uh, as Len alluded to before, uh, a kind of version of the speed trial. It was a measured mile speed trial, and even things like barrel racing. And then, of course, NASCAR was formed uh, in 1947 as part of that stock car era. Fane Lavelle is director of the Halifax Historical Society Museum, where the documentary Hop and Rattlesnakes will have a permanent home. She says racing began as a friendly competition between men. Flagler built a trellis from the mainland across to his hotel and started bringing people down from the north, and they would bring their new toy called an automobile. This was 1902. What they found is when they went down to the beach and they took bicycles down to the beach, the bicycle tires did not go down in the sand. So when the cars came down on the train, they unloaded the cars because the train pulled up right in front of the hotel. They thought, aha, what if? What if the car tires didn't go down in the sand either, and they didn't? So they started running their little cars, their little toys, up and down and up and down. The way the racing truly started, guys, it was a guy thing. My car is faster than yours. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. We'll just see. And that's how the races started. Two guys get down to the beach to see which car is the fastest, and races are born. 
Historian and film producer Leonard Lempel is pleased that the new documentary preserves the memories of people who actually experienced beach racing in the first half of the 20th century. What the film actually focuses on are the people. Uh, we did a series of interviews with uh, some of these drivers who raced on the beach. And this is between 1903 and 1958. Uh, so uh, most of the people that we interviewed are in their 80s and 90s. And uh, this is really the last chance to get these people to tell their story. And it's just so much more interesting than uh, uh, secondary sources, to have these primary sources, uh, people who actually were involved. And I think one of the best, asp uh, the, the best aspect of the film is that uh, these interviews capture uh, that uh, you know, the excitement that, uh, of beach racing, that uh, they, were, they were there, they participated in it, uh, and it's their story, and this film gives, an op gives voice to that story. Hoppin' Rattlesnakes focuses on some of the most interesting people associated with racing, including Wendell Scott, the first African-American certified to race in NASCAR in 1953, helping to integrate racing. And this is at a time when everything was segregated in the South. And he kind of snuck in the back door into NASCAR. Uh, uh, but to uh, Bill Francis' credit, he, he remained uh, a certified driver and uh, 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 was, was uh, treated with respect uh, by Bill France. Uh, but, you know, he had to... Uh, a tremendous amount of uh, obstacles in his path as, as a black race car driver uh, in the 1950s when uh, uh, everything, uh, the, the NASCAR was a, basically a, a largely a southern sport, although not entirely, uh, but many of the races were in the south, and uh, uh, Wendell Scott uh, faced tremendous obstacles. Preston Root is known as the voice of NASCAR for Motor Racing Network Radio and was interviewed for the new documentary. He says that since Daytona is so prominent in auto racing today, it's important to preserve the origins of the sport. Well, if you go back to the turn of the century, uh, this is where racing began. This is where speed trials started, and this is fast forward 100 years, and this is where the biggest racing event in the world is. Um, the Rolex 24 is a sports car race that's known the world over, and the Daytona 500 is... Uh, the most popular race literally in the world. And so you encompass more than a 100 years of racing in this community, and you try to capture that in film and in spirit, and you do that with people. So it is, this is the heart and soul of American auto racing. And you can take that just one step further and say that really racing in this community it was the beginning of racing really almost around the world. So Daytona and Volusia County is a really important place for racing, and you won't, won't find any argument about that. Preston Root explains the film's name, Hoppin' Rattlesnakes. Well, I think the name of our movie, Hoppin' Rattlesnakes, is really one of the most interesting stories about all of beach racing in the 30s until the 50s is that Florida was an unsettled state. You know, this is very early on in our tourism history and where this track was and where tens of thousands of people assembled to see stock cars race on the beach and part on A1A. 
is unsettled Florida, and so there's actually rattlesnakes living in the dunes. I mean, people, um, longtime Floridians know there's still plenty of rattlesnakes in Florida. They haven't been at the beach in a while, but that fans actually had to get into the racetrack to get past rattlesnakes and through the dunes is a real story. It's also a really interesting story in the fact that um, it wasn't uh, the promoters at the time weren't beyond warning people to not sneak into the track through the sand dunes where the rattlesnakes were. So these signs that said warning rattlesnakes and dunes kept people from sneaking into the track and they'd have to buy their ticket and sit in the grandstand. So the title itself is an interesting story. The documentary film Hoppin' Rattlesnakes, Oral Histories of Beach Racing in Volusia County, 1903 to 1958, looks at the origins of auto racing in Florida. You got a fast car Is it fast enough so you can fly away? You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can listen to archived editions of this program and read the Florida Frontiers blog. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. All right, this is Houston at 6804, your goal for LOI. Okay, Polly, let's go. Polly, right, Houston, you're right in the best one we can find around. Say again? Uh, you're riding the best bird we can find. Oh, thank you. Roger. It's a good one. That's a recording from the Apollo 8 mission, which was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, on December 21, 1968. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have a unique record here of the Apollo 8 mission, which was the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon. Yeah, that's right. We're uh, we're talking about Apollo 8, which was the second uh, manned uh, space mission of the Apollo program. Uh, the first uh, mission essentially just orbited the Earth. Uh, but Apollo 8 actually left Earth's gravitational pull and headed towards the moon. So we had a, three astronauts uh, in a small capsule that traveled uh, tens of thousands of miles around uh, another celestial body. So it was really a, a, an interesting um interesting experiment. Uh, and later on, the astronauts even ex- explained that uh, they, they understood there was really only a 50-50 chance that this would have worked. So they were kind of venturing into the unknown. Uh, but the uh, the astronauts lifted off on December uh, 21st from, uh, from Cape Canaveral, from the east coast of Florida, aboard a, a Saturn rocket. Uh, they separated from the rocket and then uh, started heading heading towards the moon. It took about three days, actually, to uh, to travel from from Earth uh, to, um, uh, to the moon's uh, um, surface or to get around the, the gravitational pull of the moon. Um, and most of that time was, uh, was used up with uh, um, basically keeping track of where they were because, uh, again, there was a lot of, uh, lot of experimentation here and um, the astronauts really had to stay, stay busy with a lot of calculations and, and navigation because they really had to, to, to uh, keep track of where they were. Um, 
so the the mission lasted from uh, uh, December 21st. They landed on, on December 27th. Um, but what's interesting is is the fact that they actually traveled to this uh, this other celestial body, the uh, the moon. Now you have a reel-to-reel tape here from NASA, and I've been in radio long enough to remember actually working with reel-to-reel tape and razor blades and and taping, uh, splicing the tape together. Of course, now everything is digital and on computers. Uh, but this reel-to-reel recording has been dubbed to CD. What's on this recording? Yeah, this is it's actually really cool. And the first time I listened to it, I listened to the entire length. It's about an hour and a half. I sat there just completely in, engrossed in, in the content. Uh, so the the audio actually picks up um, as the astronauts are approaching uh, approaching the moon. So they're they're fairly close at this point. They're being pulled in by by the moon's um, gravitational pull, uh, and the audio essentially picks up there. Uh, and, and it's uh, basically communication between the, the command center in uh, Houston, Texas, and the three astronauts aboard the, uh, the command service module as they approach the moon. Um, what's really interesting, too, is that the, at this point, the astronauts hadn't really seen the moon up close. Uh, there were some issues with uh, fogging up of, uh, of some of the windows. So up until this point, they really weren't sure where they were going. It was just based on, on the calculations and, and information from the, from the command center. Uh, that they really knew where they were coming, uh, and and what's crucial is that the uh, the spacecraft had to uh, hit the or, or enter lunar orbit at a very precise angle, um, and a lot of the tape uh, deals with sort of the technical jargon back and forth, trying to make sure that the astronauts are exactly where they need to be, because what would happen is that the astronauts had to go around the dark side of the moon. Uh, in order to to get into the to position and be within the the lunar orbit, um, and in doing so, they were outside of radio contact. Uh, so we have this period up to um, up to the the actual ignition where they had to to uh, force the spacecraft into orbit, um, and then there's a blackout for the four for about four minutes, just over four minutes. Uh, and and the astronauts later said that it was the longest four minutes of their life. Um, but then they re-enter um, the radio uh, within radio signal range. And it's at that point that we get the first description of, of the surface of the Earth. Because at that point, the astronauts come around the dark side of the moon, and they get their first opportunity to clearly see the lighted side of the moon. Uh, and, they, uh, and they actually start to kind of describe what they're seeing, which is really, like I said, a, it's a powerful moment because you can uh, really feel yourself there with the astronauts. Well, let's listen to part of the recording. Uh, what are we going to hear? So we're actually going to hear uh, about a minute. This is uh, 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 Jim Lovell, one of the astronauts, actually explaining uh, what he's looking at and what the, what the surface of the moon looks like, the color and sort of the texture. Um, and they're also talking about some of the reconnaissance because this was another main uh, part of the mission is that it was uh, uh, aimed at, at uh, figuring out where they were going to actually land the, uh, the, uh, the landing module in, in later Apollo missions. So he's talking about some of the... Uh, um, some of the craters and things that um, that they were seeing as they came around and really made that first uh, first view of the moon from only 60 nautical miles away. Uh, Apollo 8, Houston, uh, what does the old moon look like from 60 miles away? between that and the surrounding craters. 
Well, Ben, why was the Apollo 8 mission crucial to NASA's space program? Well, it, for a couple of reasons. You know, this is uh, December of 1968, uh, and, it, and the Apollo mission, it, it was, of course, a successful mission. They orbited the Earth 10 times in about a, a 20 hours, headed back to the Earth. They landed safely, um, and it really capped off um, what was a very turbulent year in American history. So you had a lot of uh, anti-war protests and, and uh, race riots, and, and you had the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and um, uh, Robert Kennedy. So there was a lot going on in America, and, and the, the success of this mission not only um, helped to kind of unite uh, Americans, you know, uh, towards this one common kind of accomplishment, but the world. I mean, at the time, um, the Apollo 8 astronauts uh, uh, televised one of the first, or broadcast, rather, the first um, um, uh, televised views of the moon during this mission as well, during those the, that 10 um, orbits around the moon. So, that, so the entire world was transfixed on, on these three these three men that were essentially a little spot in the middle of, of the uh, of the universe. Um, but it's also important because this was the end of 1968, and if they wanted to get a man on the moon, they had to do it really in the next year. Um, and there were a lot of uh, variables that, that um, uh, the astronauts and, and a lot of the engineers and scientists had to figure out, and the Apollo 8 mission was, was crucial in, in uh, figuring out you know whether or not they could get uh, three astronauts all the way to another celestial body and then back to Earth safely. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Gulf Archaeology Research Institute has been active for nearly two decades. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Florida is, is in real trouble with respect to the loss of cultural resources. That was Gary Ellis, an archaeologist that heads up an organization known as the Gulf Archaeology Research Institute. The Research Institute examines locations throughout Florida that are sites for prehistoric activity with an emphasis on ravine and coastal populations, 
as well as historical archaeology that examines pioneer settlements, the Seminole Wars, and Civil War sites. Here Mr. Ellis tells me the focus of the Research Institute's most recent activities. Because we look at uh, humans and their place in larger systems, we have a biological component to the Institute uh, in addition to the social sciences, and we have a physical sciences uh, component to the Institute. Uh, bringing all this uh, information together on archaeological and historical research allows us to look at uh, sites uh, uh, in the past that are threatened, uh, that are potentially significant in uh, new and better ways, particularly with respect to long-term interpretation and melding natural resource values with cultural resource values. Mr. Ellis reminds me, while there are many historic locations in Florida that are preserved, there are many more sites endangered. There's a lot of key sites that are well known. You see them up in St. Augustine, uh, some in South Florida. Uh, those are fairly well protected. Uh, they're under the federal or state ownership, and there's, there, there, there are people there all the time monitoring them. Indeed, we are as well. But when you get uh, through most of Florida, uh, many sites uh, that are uh, potentially significant, eligible for the National Register warranting protection, they can be on private property or in context that can't be patrolled and protected. So you have uh, potential development impacts as well as looting impacts, uh, uh, as well as uh, climate-related impacts. Uh, so I view the archaeological and historical record of Florida as highly imperiled, and it's incumbent upon uh, government uh, to provide uh, as much protection as possible. Mr. Ellis tells me here about the problems that beach and coastal erosion have on these early archaeological sites. Coastal erosion is the kind of problem that you know it's there, and you're just waiting for the next storm to come, to come and go and, and get out of the way. And you're praying that you don't have coastal surge, and you're praying that, for example, the shell middens and sites that... Uh, that are well represented along the west coast of Florida represent, uh, in some respects, the acne of architectural development and cultural complexity uh, in, in Florida's prehistory, at least in late prehistory. Those are subject to uh, environmental impacts. It's beyond comprehension. And you realize things that aren't made of concrete uh, can often be moved around by by wave surge, and these are dramatic uh, movements of water. Uh, it's a very powerful hydraulic force that uh, redeposited shell. And some islands along the coast actually move from storm to storm. Uh, they, the shell is thrown over, and the islands reform. And after a period of time, of course, any archaeological context uh, that is, the capacity to, to identify in situ, undisturbed uh, remains, is, uh, is gone. Mr. Ellis explains why he thinks climate change is the most serious problem facing historic coastal sites in Florida. We have compounding all this, uh, the results of climate change, and that's sea level rise. Uh, for us, this is an important uh, point. We've been studying resources along the coast uh, since 1995 and uh, are acutely aware at, that the water is rising. 
But there, the concomitant effects of that uh, changes in are increasing in tidal flow, inundation of land, and even in some portions of the coastal strand, the the loss of fresh water in a highly karst environment, and then its replacement by seawater, the the landscape within which uh, ancient sites are located, and even historic sites, is is changing markedly, and. Uh, much is already underwater. That was Gary Ellis, and I'm Robert Castanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can read the Florida Frontiers blog. Like us on Facebook to get our daily post today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.